Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. To the book of 1 Peter after a, a bit of an extended break, and we're going to finish up our study of the book of 1 Peter uh, with three messages, which having studied the last chapter of this letter, uh, it seems that if we were to follow the advice that Peter gives in that last chapter, the result would be that our church or any church that lives like that will become much healthier. And so we're going to wrap up our series in First Peter with three messages in a mini-series entitled, Three Marks of a Healthy Church. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather go to a healthy church than a famous church. And that doesn't mean they're mutually exclusive, but if I had to pick one adjective to describe the church that I give my life to, I would hope that the number one adjective is that it is healthy in every possible way. It's, it's, you know what I'm talking about, not just big, famous, rich, whatever, but healthy. Because I think that feeds the soul and allows us to, to feel that we're part of something that God is doing. The first message in that little mini-series is about a healthy attitude towards authority. And I think this is extremely important because as I've been a student of the church for the last nearly 20 years, really traveling and paying attention to what God is doing through his body. One thing I've noticed in families and churches and really any organization where people gather is that much of the breakdown that happens can be traced back to a breakdown in leadership and in the way that authority is used and received. Isn't that true in your family? I bet a lot of your family issues have to do with a parent who didn't use their authority in the most productive ways, and then as a result, you didn't respond to their authority in the best ways. Or sometimes you have a great parent, and you have a really rotten, evil child, right, who becomes a teenager and decides, I'm going to hate everyone and everything and listen to nobody. I can't always explain why that happens, but sometimes... Children get the darkness in them, you know what I mean? And, and so as a result, even though the leadership or authority is used well, there's no healthy response to it. Regardless of on which end of that equal sign the breakdown occurs, if authority is not used and received well, there is no health among people. And that is very true in the church. I want to walk through this passage with you. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. I'm going to read out of the ESV. And it says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, a lot of this teaching, because the majority of that passage deals with leaders or people in authority, is going to be aimed at leaders. And here's how I want all of you to be hearing that. If you are a leader in our church, now, first of all, the main focus here is going to be pastors and elders, because that's who Peter's writing to. But I think it's okay to extend that to any leader in the church. If you are a leader, then I'm, what I want you to hear is, how am I supposed to wear 
this authority which God has given me in this church? How am I supposed to wear it? If you are not a leader, here's what I want you to be hearing. What is the measuring rod by which we will gauge our leader's effectiveness? What kind of expectations do we have for those who would stand up and lead us in this church? And, and what I mean by this, not just so you can get all judgmental, but how can you encourage and prod those in leadership to stay focused on the right track so you can wholeheartedly give them your support and your submission? One of the things I want to make note of is that Peter is very careful to make use of this phrase, among you. He addresses the elders who are among you, so that everyone reading this letter says, oh yeah, we have elders among us. And then he says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And I want to highlight that for just a moment to speak about a very important value that we have at Harvest about leadership. It's been my observation that in, in the church, there are two kinds of leaders, broadly speaking. There are those leaders who lead from among the people, and there are those leaders who lead from above the people. We've probably known and been under the leadership of both kinds of people. And I think the kind of leadership which Peter and which I really believe the Lord has in mind is not leadership from above people, but leadership from among them. And hear this the right way. I don't mean that you lead from behind or that you, you somehow downplay the authority God's given. But what I mean is if we're going to be effective leaders, we can't do it as a disconnected painting on the wall. And we can't phone it in, you know what I'm saying? You have to be a leader who actually is involved in the fabric of the lives of the people that you lead. I think the most ineffective leaders are talking heads. Famous people who write well-known books, give speeches to thousands of people, but nobody knows who they are and they don't know who anybody else is. I think this is one of the strongest arguments for a church that either remains medium in size or has a very healthy way of dividing the congregation into smaller units so that leaders at some level can say, I actually live among the people that we lead. One of the reasons that I'm glad for the size of our church, that's not to say I don't want us to grow, but I'm glad for the size of this church because I still feel like I'm part of it. I don't know that there would be very much joy in the experience for me if I were the pastor of an 8,000-member church where I'd walk through the hallways and I couldn't say a genuine hello, my friend, to anyone. It would be a lot of, how are you? Nice to see you. You know, like how the politicians do at the debates or at conventions. That, I see you. I see you. And it's just this kind of very shallow, I think I've seen your face before. Something about that would leave me feeling very empty about the experience of leadership. One of the things we value at Harvest is that we lead in the example of Jesus, who when he wanted to save humanity, didn't call it in long distance. What did he do? He came down to be among us. He became flesh. He wore the suit of meat and bones just like us, so that when he saved us, he did it from in our midst. And I want you to know that if you have a leader at this church who feels very distant, who has lots of policies and opinions and convictions, but hasn't made an investment to actually know you at any level, that you are within your rights to say, I need more from you. I want to know who you are as a person. I want to feel like you're not just governing us, you are leading from among us. That is something that I really want to hold up as a measuring rod for all those who lead at our church. Amen? And then Peter launches into a very interesting way of speaking to the leaders. He uses this formula. He gives three things that he says, not like this, but rather like this. 
Now, do you realize whenever you see a command given in the Bible, standing behind that command is some natural human tendency which the command seeks to address. In other words, God only commands things when he realizes that if he didn't say anything, we would probably do the exact opposite. And so he gives a few commands on how to serve as a leader. And he's speaking to the leaders here. And the first thing he says is, not, don't serve under compulsion, but do it willingly. And then he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And finally, not domineering, but being examples. That's pretty self-explanatory, but I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. I'm going to say a few things about each of those rather quickly. I want you to track with me as we're doing that. Because standing behind each of those commands to a leader is a natural temptation to, to succumb to something else that very many people have fallen to. First thing I want to see, see, uh, point out is he tells us not to lead under compulsion, but willingly. I don't know if you can see that picture very well, but it's a business suit guy like tied up in chains. And you know the thing is, sometimes that's the way I feel that leaders see themselves. When I... When I have lunch with somebody and it's just all about, hey, how are you doing? You know, it's really fun, it's warm, it's engaging. But when the conversation sometimes takes a turn to, you know, listen, I've been really thinking that it's time for you to take your next step at our church. And, uh, you know, you've been here a while. I feel like there's a need in ministry and you could fill it. Suddenly, the whole mood changes. In fact, what I notice is people sit up a little straighter in their chairs or they slouch a little more. But the, the whole body language says, oh, Lord, here it comes. Here's a reason the man done fed me, right? Like, this is the hammer coming down. And very rarely is an invitation to serve at, at a leadership position greeted enthusiastically. I think that's because the natural human tendency is to fly below the radar, to remain untethered, unobligated. Do you know what I'm talking about? To remain free. Because leadership is costly. And, and when we accept a call to leadership, what happens is we have to say goodbye to a certain level of comfort. I think that's the temptation which Peter is addressing here, is everyone wants to be comfortable, and leadership is the last thing, the farthest thing from being comfortable. Isn't it true? How many of you lead at our church right now? Let me see your, 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 see your hands. Am I, not, am, am I not telling the truth? Leadership is uncomfortable. Right? Or as one friend of mine once put it, it's discomfortable. Bad English, but it just made it sound so much more like the way it feels. It's discomfortable to be a leader. Why would you need compulsion to do something unless the natural tendency was to avoid it? And what I realize is that it is a rare thing for a person to joyfully stand up and be willing to take the mantle of leadership in the church. Now, I've, I wrestled a little bit this week with, why is that? What are some of the things that keep people from jumping at a leadership role in the church? And I've identified a few things I think you might be able to relate to. One is that when you become a leader, you become accountable. Suddenly, people have expectations of you. There, there's a, a sense in which you are being measured by others, and they have valid opinions about how you live your life. That really stinks, doesn't it? Because before you're a leader, you're like, what, whatever, I'm just another Joe. But the minute you become a leader, people say stuff to you like, you call yourself a leader. That's usually the person you're married to. You call yourself a leader. And then the other people quietly mumble the same words behind your back in the hallways of the church. Another thing, I don't know if you can see the picture very well, but that's a goldfish bowl. When you become a leader, you start living your life in a fishbowl. 
Everything that used to be private suddenly becomes public. That's a really hard thing. You know, for example, people come up to pastors all the time and go, Hey, that's a really nice TV. And the first thing out of the pastor's mouth is, I got it on sale. Oh, somebody gave it to me as a gift. Because you feel judged financially when you draw your income from the giving of the church. There's a sense in which every financial decision you make is a public one that everybody who gave offering has some kind of opinion about. And that's a pretty unnerving way to live your whole life. I don't know if you guys can fully appreciate what that feels like because you get your check from a nameless corporation probably. But if you have to walk around seeing the faces of the people who gave that money in faith, you feel like you've got to explain yourself all the time. And even when it's not financial... People are always going, hey, isn't that a leader's kid who's running half naked through the hallways, kidding other children? Ah, there's those elders' kids again, always a problem. And you know, you start to hear things like that and you feel really exposed. And before you were a leader, nobody said anything about your life. But now that you're a leader, everything is a fishbowl. And then there's obligation. What a picture, right? Is that the way you feel if you're a leader sometimes? It's like there used to be things you did out of the sheer joy of being born again and loving Jesus. And you feel it, so you just give your little secret Santa to the Lord. And, and you just feel so good about it. And then you become a leader, and now it's like you just work here. Everybody expects you. You're obligated to do the things you once did out of the joyfulness of your heart. Now, if you're a leader, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. That sucks the wind out of you a little. It feels a bit like getting punched in the stomach. Before, you used to fold up chairs and everyone would be like, you know what, brother, thank you for serving. That's great that you stuck around. We really appreciate you. That's what you get when you're not a leader. When you are a leader, you're like, hurry up. And when you're done, can you load that stuff in my car? See you next week. And you're like, where is the red carpet? Where is the fanfare, the applause I used to enjoy? And now I have to do all this stuff. If you join the church staff, you know what that feels like right away, especially if you're not in pastoral staff, but support staff. It's like, man, everybody expects that you are their slave. And I understand how that works, and it's a heavy thing. And then there's the cost factor involved with stepping up to leadership. It is expensive in terms of freedom, time, energy, even money. To be a leader in any church that's, that's actually moving with the Lord it will cost you something. Some people this morning who lead community groups got up early and were in church by 8.45. Some people who lead us in praise got here at 7 a.m. Many of you might not see all of that, but I tell you it is required for you to experience what you experience every week at our church. And it's expensive to lead. And so there's all these things, and there's so many more things that can be said, right? But these are some of the big ones that jumped out at me. Why do people need compulsion to lead? Because leadership is uncomfortable, and it's costly, and it's inconvenient, and so people need some prodding. And what Peter's saying is the true godly leaders, the ones that God is using, the ones that please Him the most, are not people who require a lot of coercion from the outside, but their call to leadership is responded to internally. That somewhere inside, they have counted the cost, but their love for Christ outweighed all that it would cost them. I hope that's the kind of people who will take leadership roles at Harvest Community Church. And any time a leader 
actually achieves escape velocity. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say escape velocity? They overcome the gravity, the gravitational pull of our human desire for comfort. When God succeeds in pulling someone out of that, we need to applaud that, we need to celebrate what God has done, and we need to strongly support and encourage those people. Because they're the ones who put their necks out there when it's very difficult to do it. And we have to praise God for it. And we have to make sure we do everything in our power to tell those people we have their backs. And we're following them with all our hearts. Now, if you're a leader hearing that, all this talk that Peter gives about not on compulsion but willingly, here's a couple more things I want you to hear. One, would you just accept that if you're a leader... That God wants you to work hard, not because there's a whip on your back, but because He is so worthy of your best. I didn't even think a word was necessary on that slide. I mean, that right there is... Here's another way of putting it. If you lead at our church, hit it hard. I mean, hit it hard. Don't be lazy. Don't be the leader who pulls out some lame discussion out of your back pocket at the stoplights on the way to small group. Don't be that person. Take it seriously. Realize what an amazing privilege God has given you to play the role in the transformation of somebody's life. That you might be leading a divine appointment where that Bible study, that moment of awakening, changes the entire course of that life. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that, because along the course of my own life, there have been nodes, pivotal moments, insights that have completely set me in another direction. I am standing in front of you today because of many such moments that work together under God to bring me to where I am. You have that opportunity. Do not, do not ever phone it in. Don't take the easy way out. It's easy to fake it. It's easy to make people think you're working hard when really you're not working hard at all. Do not lead like that at this church. If you are one of our leaders, you hit it hard every chance you get. Give God the very best that you have. A work ethic worthy of a God who has called you to this privileged position. Are you hearing me? Just one leader, give me an amen so I know that our leaders are hearing me. I want you to give your very best and hold me to do the same. And here's another thing I think you need to say. Say yes in a fresh way to God every day. You know, yesterday's yes could be today's what did I, what was I thinking, right? You cannot coast on the momentum of yesterday's answer to God. But what he says is today you serve me willingly afresh. Today, you accept again the calling which I've given you. Maybe you were excited about your community group or your your seeds class when you first said yes, and maybe today you're a little more disillusioned and tired. But that doesn't mean you get to just walk away from it because it became heavy. What you say is, God, you once moved my heart to say yes, and I meant it. I asked you to move my heart again today for this day's challenge, this day's burden. And the same goes if you're a parent, doesn't it? I mean... Do you ever look at your kid and go, what were we thinking? Why do we have so many? In some cases, why do we even have one? Can we return it if we save the hospital receipt? I know you feel like that sometimes. And even if you're a parent, you sometimes just have to go, guess what? Today, God, I accept my call to be a mom or a dad. It never gets easier. My kids never get better, but I accept it again. And today I say to you, with the tiles you gave me, I spell out yes. Yes, Lord, today, just like yes, Lord, yesterday. Do not coast on last year's commitment to God. If you're a leader at our church, it's a pretty heavy standard, but it's one that God can empower you to live by. 
Do not need or require external compulsion. But serve the Lord because you see that he is so worthy of it. And he is renewing something inside of you every single day. Here's another thing. You can just kind of, I wish we could lower that, but you could read it. It says, not for shameful, yours is better. Okay, mine is the jacked up one back there. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, we joke a lot that nobody goes into ministry for the money. Okay? Um, if you go into it for the money, you're probably a snake, because there are some people who do. But you know the truth is, in America today, <clears throat> if you are part of a healthy church, you actually make a healthy living. You know, the staff of this church, we really don't have any complaints about what we earn. I, I, you know, I, I can, I'm going to be honest with you. I could have made a lot more money somewhere else. Okay, I could have. I proved that to myself. But I don't make next to nothing here. I make enough that I'm able to provide for my family a very reasonable standard of living. And what I'm learning is, as I travel America and get to know some of the pastors you heard about in books and on television and stuff... As I get to meet some of these guys, I realized if you really wanted to, you actually could become a wealthy pastor in America. There is, in fact, this sort of unspoken club that the media has devised called the Wealthy Pastors Club. And there are new guys being added to that every day. Pastors who live in multi-million dollar homes. Never mind how they got their money, many of them arrived at it in different ways. And if a guy writes a good book and it kills in the bestseller list, God bless him. Let him have some money. Right? Why am I going to begrudge him? In fact, I might even be a little envious. I know that's a sin. But, you know, the thing is, it's possible in ministry, if you chase the the money, that it will come. Even if you're not chasing the money, money can come to the pastor. And the thing is, it's one of the most universal temptations that corrupts a human heart, is when money becomes part of the equation of our life's big decisions. Every one of us is wired in such a way That if it's not money, there's some other form of selfish gain that can easily drive us and own us if we do not keep careful watch over it. And what Peter says is, be very careful that a desire for selfish and shameful gain does not overtake your reasons for leading. Now, what I find interesting is, as a leader, I could actually leverage my leadership position to get money. I know a number of people who serve in pastoral roles who take on advising roles or consulting roles as the chief spiritual officer of a, a, a corporation. I was actually asked to be a chief spiritual officer of a company, and I got excited thinking I could guide them. Instead, it was more of a rubber stamping thing. I didn't see a penny or any influence, and so I got discouraged by it. But there are other guys who have been brought on because a, a successful pastoral leader can also very readily translate to a successful business leader. I, in fact, have a good friend who's pastor of a very successful and large church who also is the CEO of another corporation, and he makes a very healthy living doing that. If that happens to you as a leader and you somehow find a worldly gain for your spiritual investment, be very much on your guard because that thing could start taking over for you. The truth is some of you in leadership here at this church are not getting any money for it, but maybe it's not money you're after. Maybe it's not money that your heart yearns for. But what else might drive a person to say yes to a leadership role for other than noble purposes? Well, here are a couple things I think people are chasing. Some people just are doing it because what they crave is affirmation. They want recognition and applause. And when people praise them for what they've done, their heart is fed by that. Some amount of recognition is important. I mean, 
That's why we do things like Pastors Appreciation Month and volunteer appreciation events and things like that. We want to recognize people, but maybe that's what really drives you is the applause and the recognition. And if that's the case, that's where you've got to be very careful in leadership. Because as soon as the applause stops, you will become very bitter as a leader. You know, for some other people, it's attention and admiration from the opposite sex. Now, I know you're thinking, what is he talking about? You have any idea how many young men I've talked to? And I say, listen, why are you in ministry right now? What, what, what drove you to say goodbye to a great career and train to become a pastor? Do you know how many young men, when we finally get past all the baloney and we're like late into the night, they're finally, the, their defenses are breaking down. And I go, dude, just come on, really give it to me straight. You know what comes up? Well, you know, I'm looking around the church, all these pastors I know, they all have awesome wives. And I figured if that's what you get for being a pastor, I'd rather give up a little pay and get a good woman. Like, what? (laughs) Now, it's true. I mean, just look around at our church. Pastors all have amazing wives. Okay? You don't go into ministry to become desirable to godly women or men, whatever the case may be. You go into ministry because you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you love his people. And if there's any shadow of other motivation in you, it is that very thing that could sink you and undo the effectiveness of your leadership. You need to guard that carefully and crucify it before the Lord in prayer because that will take you over. You guys know that guy? Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. There isn't a person who has their head on straight who admires that guy. And he's not just a, I mean, he's, I've done my homework. He is among the worst, among that bunch. I have ministered, his his name is Robert Tilton. He is perhaps, in my opinion, the greasiest among the species known as corrupted televangelists. I think there are many on TV who are preaching God's word. This is not one of them. And he has made millions off of this. He has made millions, including taking advantage of some people who we're trying to help through our benevolence ministry. And they've given their last dollar to this man, hoping that the handkerchief he sneezed on will give them good luck and financial blessing. He is in it for the money. And I can say that as safely as anyone can say anything about another person. And he stands in my mind as a symbol of what we ministers should never become and what Christian leaders should never become. I don't know what awards or medals you're chasing, but it is only the approval of God that should drive us. And here's the last thing that Peter's talking about to leaders. <clears throat> Not domineering, but being examples. That's just a great picture. How many of you guys grew up watching the Stooges? I wish they would bring it back to primetime television. I just, I love the Stooges. And I always identified with Mo. I don't know why. <clears throat> I kind of, I think I, I might look like him if you put glasses on there. And Mo has pulled enough hair out of Larry's head to make a sweater, hasn't he? I mean... <clears throat> and, and Curly must have serious concussion and brain damage. Always, he's always hitting them. It's always about why I ought to, and he's bounce, bounce. You know, he's, he's killing these guys. This is the way Mo wore his leadership. He was very domineering. They could say nothing. It could be a silent film, and you'd still know who was the boss of that crew. And this is the wrong way to wear your leadership authority. <clears throat> I've got a friend who, who passes a really large church in East Texas. And I asked him, you know, 
what is one of the hardest human resource decisions you've ever had to make? Did you ever have to fire someone? He said, yeah, we had to fire four people. But one of the easiest firings he ever did was with a guy who I, he just said, he, he fired him because the guy was a butt. What? He goes, yeah, he was a butt, man. I said, what do you mean by butt? He was just mean. He would yell at people, intimidate them. He would take church leaders and reduce them to tears because he would yell at them for a mistake they'd made. There was no graciousness. There was no softness. There was no understanding. This is a person who drove his family, his business, and his church with the same iron rod. He only knew one way of operating, and there was nothing Christ-like in the way he did it. He scared people, terrified people, made them worry, lose sleep, lose weight, and so he had to get rid of them. And I'm telling you, he made a good decision. Because people like that are toxic in leadership. Peter says that if you are a leader in the pattern of Jesus Christ, then you do not lord it over people. You do not wear your leadership authority with a swagger of self-centered confidence, but with a humility that says, I wield great authority in the church. I must never let it get to my head. For it is not my own authority which I steward, but the authority of the living God, and I am his servant. When I say something, it's not thus saith Dave Lee, but thus saith the Lord in whose employ I work. Do you understand that dynamic? And when you see a leader who has believed his own press and is walking around like he runs the place, that is a leader you cannot trust. You run from that person. From that person who is so domineering. And here's the heart of what Peter is saying. Don't just tell people what to do, but show them. It's show and tell. I think speaking words of truth boldly and courageously is always going to be a part of any good, effective leadership. But for the leader who stops at words and does not demonstrate with their life the picture of Christian faith, which we are trying to embody, that is not an effective leader. And that is not a leader who I hope will last very long at Harvest Community Church. The leader which God uses speaks the truth as much with their lives as they do with their mouths. Here's what I mean by that. I was in California when the election results came out, and in California, all the buzz was not just about the Obama you know, victory, but it was also about Prop 8, about this wrestling match that this state was having with the biblical definition of marriage, and I was amazed to find pastors in my group on both sides of that vote. And what we're saying is, how many people in America are so quick to rant and rave about the biblical definition of marriage, and yet in their lives, not once have they extended the hand of friendship and ministered to someone of the homosexual lifestyle to show them what the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. That we cast a little check on a ballot to say, we'll deny you some civil right on the basis of principle. That's fine. I can agree with that if it's a matter of policy and an extension of your convictions. But it is so false to wear that opinion in your mouth and in your mind and never once follow through by showing the world what it looks like when Jesus holds an opinion like that. How many people say the gospel is truth and yet we never broke out of our comfort zones to walk across the room and tell somebody else that Jesus loves them more than they'll ever understand? It's so easy to be opinionated. It is so easy to fight for the right team, to have opinion. I mean, I talk to people all the time who, if I left them alone, they could lecture me for five hours straight about all the opinions they're carrying around. And yet, all I have to say to them is, yeah, but okay, you believe all this stuff. Show me in your life. 
how deeply you believe it, and I will follow you. This is moral authority, which I referred to last Sunday. And it's the only real authority in the church, isn't it? When it really gets boiled down to it. If Mo became a quadriplegic, those two guys would beat the living tar out of him in his wheelchair. Do you understand that? Because while he swings his fist, they obey. But he has not won their hearts at all. If you want to lead at this church, let me press upon you how important it is that you lead with your life as well as with your mouth. People need to see that when we talk about family values, we are rebuilding our whole lives around making an intentional investment in our spouses, in our children, even in the children's lives of our neighbors who are neglected by their own parents. We're doing everything we can, not just to talk about it, but to reframe our whole lives around these things we say we believe. That, to me, is credible leadership. That's really what Peter's talking about here. Let me just close with what Peter closes with here, which is a final passing word here to those who come under the followership or submission to these leaders. Because we've said a lot of things to leaders, but that's only half the equation. That's one side of the equal sign. On the other side of it is everybody else. Those who are being led. And here's the word of God to you. If you are not a leader at our church, this is what God wants you to hear this morning. That your submission to your leaders, your willingness to line up with them, has a great deal to do with how effectively and how healthy this church will become. Your followership, not only as a response to good leadership, but as a choice before your God, has a great deal to do with how our church ends up. You know, a lot of people say, you know, did you hear this kind of rhetoric in the last eight years? Bush is not my president because I didn't vote for him. I hear that. I just want to take a stick and just go, whack, shush. Whether you voted for him or not, it's not the issue. If he's your leader, then your response frames what America feels like and how America works. And the same is true in the church. It sure helps if a leader is worthy of our respect, doesn't it? I mean, if you've got a bozo in the White House or behind the pulpit, it makes it really challenging to follow and submit. And so, granted, leaders who lead the way we just described will get your natural response of respect, won't they? It's easy to follow. But I want you to hear me when I say this from the Word of God. Just because a leader isn't perfect doesn't mean you're free to simply line up behind your own positions, your own desires, your own decisions. Because God says, for you, followership is an intentional choice. It says here, likewise, you who are younger, really referring broadly to all those who are not leaders in the church, be subject to the elders. That phrase, be subject, if you translate it literally from the Greek, is a military term about soldiers marching in formation. That's why I chose that picture. What he's saying is, when you watch soldiers march, there's really only one guy who knows where he's going, and everybody else knows just to keep a straight line and walk where that guy walks. That's the way it is. That leaders are provided to the church to give a sense of scaffolding and order for how we move together. At Harvest, we have tried to open the, chains of, uh, the, the channels of communication. We haven't done it perfectly, but you, there are legitimate ways for you to make yourself heard. But once we decide to move somewhere and the leaders have decided, here's your obligation before God. Line up with us. 
Don't fight us. If you're fighting us legitimately, there are channels for you to do that. But if it's just pride, it's like, well, no one listened to me. I think I got the right way to do it. The rest of these people are stupid, and you're just going to be a stick in the mud and go, I don't agree with the leadership of this church. This is not me talking, right? If it was me talking, I might be even less generous. This is the Word of God talking. What he says, if you're in that position, is exhaust every legitimate means to make change. And if you can't, either leave or get in line with the rest of the church. This is your decision before God because he is the one who calls us to line up around our leaders. And when I say leave, I don't say callously or casually, like just get out. I'm not that kind of pastor. But I'm saying if you're this frustrated and nothing you believe deeply lines up with the things that the leaders believe, that's God's signal that you will build another church more effectively than you will build this one. What you're not free to do is remain in your pride and dismantle everything which we're trying to build. That is not something you have the freedom to do. And what the Bible promises, if you take that route, it says here very clearly, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I've watched churches invite the opposition of the living God because of a few prideful people who will not bend their knees to God's authority. If you're proud and rebellious and uncooperative as a follower in this church, and it rises out of your pride and stubbornness, let me tell you, that is not a neutral thing. You invite calamity and the very opposition of God to the things we're doing as a church. And you need to repent of that sin. And you need to get right before God. Or you need to move on to another place. I, I don't say that with a smile. That's not a happy, feel-good way to end this message. But I think it's rarely said in the church. And you need to hear that your followership to the, God, to the authority of the church's leaders is a personal matter of obedience between you and God. And we will do our best as leaders not to stand in the way of that with poor leadership or ungodly leadership. But you need to remember that when we move, we must move together as a church. Let me just give you a quick review. <clears throat> if you're a leader, please lead from among our people and not above. Don't require an external compulsion, but serve willingly. Hit it hard. Work. Don't seek comfort. But seek commitment. Resist any welling up of shameful gain. If you're getting something out of leadership other than the satisfaction of serving God, there's a problem rising in your life. Be careful about it. And don't be like Mo. Don't be like Mo. Wear your authority in a winsome and gracious way. For the people of God, remember that followership is an intentional choice. So suit up with humility before God. And line up with your leaders so that their service to the Lord becomes a joy and not a burden. I, I hope those words will bounce around in your hearts and your heads for a while this week. And as we get ready for a closing response and some time of singing, here's what I want to ask of you. Begin first with any place where you are called to be a leader and meditate on whether this is the way that you lead. And then I want you to think about the leaders God has set over you in this church and see if the Lord might be challenging you to better support them or maybe strongly challenge them about something that's off in the way that they wear their authority as a leader.
Can we do that? So I'm going to invite the praise team to come up. We're going to sing a few more songs than usual as we close our service today. But I want to invite you, before they come up, to bow with me in prayer. Sometimes a sermon ends on a strongly charged emotional note. I don't sense that this is one of those sermons. But I believe that there is a response that God is wanting from every one of us to this message. If you're a leader in any capacity in life, I want you to go to prayer for just a few minutes. And if the Lord has convicted you of something in your own leadership or authority that doesn't reflect what you just heard, we need to make confession about that and say, God, the reason I'm being ineffective, the reason I'm frustrated, is because I'm not wearing the authority you gave me the way that I was supposed to. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.